0: Where do you fall in the common road cyclist categories? Are you a climber, a sprinter, a time trialist, a roulette, a sandbagger? If you didn't know, part of these categories are a loose translation of your predominant muscle fiber type. This used to be thought of as two distinct categories, slow twitch and fast twitch. But the truth is, muscle fibers exist on a continuum between explosive, but easily fatigable, and slower, but more fatigue-resistant. Why does this matter, you ask? Well, a new group of studies has found a new way to assess, classify, and use your individual muscle fiber typology to help you know which cycling discipline to focus on and also help you individualize your training sessions and loading. Because what we're seeing now is the confirmation that the exact same workout can have drastically different impacts on two riders because of their athlete types. And that's an exciting step into the future of training personalization. yo and welcome back to Ride Better Faster, a show about cycling, training, and racing. I'm Damien Roos. This episode is based on a two-part series on HIT science, that's H-I-I-T called Muscle Fibre Typology and the Individual Responses to Training. The authors of these articles were also authors of three studies, well, part of them, Phil Bellinger and Eline Levins were the authors here and many others also contributed to this body of work. Two of the studies were published in the Journal of Applied Physiology and the other in the Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise and flow on from one another, starting with how to assess and categorize your muscle typology. Before we get into the first study and practical applications, let's take a spin through how to classify muscle fiber types. If you stick with me, we'll go through the ways that you can estimate your muscle fiber typology as well. Traditionally, it's been hard to assess muscle fiber composition because it involves a muscle biopsy, which basically involves carving out a small chunk of flesh for analysis. What we'd like to do is get a sample like that from you so we can assess what qualities your muscle had to make you a champion. Are you, are you interested? Are you up for it? So you can just get from my cheek, right? Well, we'd prefer your leg muscles since they were really what helped you make a champion. taking a sample from his leg means that Colin is going to have to go under the knife obviously you're going to be a little bit tense because they're going to be ripping muscles fibres from outside you know. so yeah of course I'm a little bit anxious as an athlete no way would I have done this this is former world champion hurdler Colin Jackson getting it done for a BBC show called The Making of Me yeah that's great Head back up here and you can just lay down and relax. You should see this stabby thing. It's not insignificant. I feel a little bit of a stick here. All right, Colin, you just relax. I feel an awkward pressure here. Yeah, awkward pressure. That's it. Good job. It was an awkward pressure. It was very quick, but it was an awkward pressure. (laughs) A sample will measure one centimeter in length and 0.5 centimetres in diameter. It's like taking a metal straw, cutting it at 45 degrees, and then stabbing that into the leg and seeing what comes out of it. Which, yes, it's as painful as it sounds, and it's actually pretty painful to watch. So it's not hard to imagine that no one is a fan of this, especially high-level athletes. Donating some of your hard-earned muscle to science? No thanks. But there's a new technique on the block. In the past few years, a non-invasive method of estimating fiber composition has been developed where all you have to do is lie down and go into an MRI scanner. This technique involves proton magnetic resonance spectroscopy of muscle carnosine content. I know, blah, 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 blah. I'll go into a touch more detail for those that are interested. Carnosine acts as a buffering agent to maintain muscle pH, and it has been correlated to be much higher in type 2 fibres and associated with the relative cross-sectional areas of these fibres. That may not mean much to you, but here's the cool thing. The group from Ghent University in Belgium used this technique to find muscle fibre typology in world-class cyclists across a range of disciplines and published the results in the Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise Journal. Now, we're talking... 80 pro cyclists, men and women from BMX, cross-country Olympic, cyclocross, track and road cycling, world tour, pro Conti, Olympians, world champs, you name it. And if you want to name a big rider, it doesn't get much bigger or more interesting than Matthew Vanderpol. I'll get to where he may sit in just a moment. First, a bit more on how they classified the disciplines. Road cyclists were split into single stage, multi-stage or time trialists, and also for flat, uphill or all-terrain riders. Track riders were also split further as sprint and endurance riders. So much for the old categories. It seems very detailed. But of course, all of these are probably being taken into consideration when a pro team is selecting what riders to put forward in the team and where they're going to use them. But definitely with this new testing comes new possibilities, I guess. And the results from these cyclists are an absolute carnosine concentration expressed as a z-score relative to a non-athlete control population. And the measure is called the carnosine Z-score. This came up with a nice-looking graph that plots these world-class cyclists with related carnosine Z-scores. And while it kind of confirms what we already know, it does give a great visual of the different typology and how each discipline crosses over the ones that are close to it. So starting with the obvious ones at each end, there's the minus Z-scores, which are the more slow typology. So this is where the road climbers sit, on the far left with a Z-score of around minus two. All the way to the other side is BMX with a plus Z-score for a more fast typology, and they sit at around plus 1.5. Then all other disciplines sit somewhere in the middle of these two. Other roadies sit approximately at minus one, and here's where Matthew Vanderpoel may sit, because cyclocross is smack bang... In the middle of the road Z-score. It's more focused, meaning it goes from minus one to zero, and road cycling stretches from minus two to plus 0.5, but there's a clear overlap between them. But Vanderpol can also sprint, and there's a slight overlap with road sprinters as well, because road sprinters sit at approximately 0.25. There's a few more of these overlaps that are interesting and can explain the ability for certain riders to compete in other disciplines, but the phenomenon that is Vanderpol is the most interesting one especially because we know he's been tested. Okay, now before we dive into how individual typology affects training, how do you get this done for yourself? Right now, you have to go to Ghent. Although, it looks like you can run the settings on any MRI scanner, so it might be closer to you in the future. I'm not sure about the price and let's be honest, having it in one place will make it hard for most people to get access to it. If you don't have access to this, how do you determine your athlete type? Anyone with a power meter has some idea of their strengths and weaknesses across the power curve, so has some idea of their muscle typology. For example, if you have high numbers in peak power and your functional reserve capacity, then it's likely that you have a relatively high proportion of fast twitch muscles. But this isn't always the best way to assess yourself i found athletes that sit somewhere in the middle and can do certain types of efforts or tests well, but not others, and it isn't always so clear. Coaching OG Joe Friel had these suggestions, which takes it a little bit further. If you tend to do better in short, fast races and workouts rather than long events or high duration workouts relative to a small group of athletes, then you probably have more fast twitch muscles. Other possible and somewhat weak indicators of predominant twitch include frequent delayed onset of muscle soreness from weightlifting. Slow twitch athletes are also probably more efficient in their sport-specific movements for long durations rather than fast twitch, who will likely become sloppier in their sport-specific movement patterns late in a long workout. But there are several other factors that could have an effect on all of this. For example, There's always a mental aspect when it comes to training and racing. A slow twitch athlete may have a real disdain for long distance workouts for any number of reasons. So although this person may be made for long distance sessions, they actually hate doing them and may prefer short, fast, interval type sessions. Then there's age. As we get older, we typically lose fast twitch muscle fibers and so have a greater proportion of slow twitch. (laughs) to the original article and the authors wanted to use these new Z scores to see how the impact of muscle fiber typology was on recovery from high intensity interval training. They specifically wanted to know if athletes with more fast twitch fibers had greater fatigue during a sprint interval training session than athletes with more slow twitch fibers. They took 10 trained cyclists with high fast twitch typing and 10 with high slow twitch typing Each group performed three by 30-second wingate tests. Of note here is the style which they did it. It is 30 seconds all out, but they wanted these riders to go all out at the start and then try and hang on until the end. This is a super ulchi way to do things. Five hours following the workout, each athlete performed repeated muscle testing. This included maximal isometric, where your leg stays in the same position, knee extension, and muscle force from maximal electric stimulation the respected results were seen from the Wingates themselves. The fast switch group had higher peak power during the first sprint. However, the rate of fatigue was faster in this group over both an individual Wingate sprint and over the course of the three Wingates. Overall mean power output over the three Wingates were similar for both groups. Look, that's not so interesting yet, pretty standard. But the cool finding... Was that the slow twitch and fast twitch groups were dramatically different in how they recovered over the course of five hours following this workout? In the slow twitch group, there was a slight increase in maximal knee extension torque at 10 minutes into recovery, but this group recovered to pre workout levels by 20 minutes. In contrast, the fast twitch group had a much greater torque reduction at 10 minutes and torque was still significantly lower than pre-workout levels even five hours into recovery. So what are the takeaways from this study then? Short-term recovery time following a sprint interval training session is dependent on your muscle fiber typology. It really needs to be factored into how training sessions are distributed in a week fast twitch athletes may require more recovery between workouts given that recovery between sessions is considerably slower compared to slow twitch athletes. And here's where training philosophy may be important. For fast twitch athletes, hitting a build phase with a polarized approach may work better when doing these types of efforts. So you have one day where you're doing sprint, the next day, super light and easy, maybe long, but super light and easy and then the next day is when you hit the intervals again. While slow twitch athletes may be able to maintain some type of threshold or sweet spot training in the same period, so the hard day, and then the next day, you may be able to do some tempo or some sweet spot, maybe threshold, I wouldn't recommend it, and then the next day after that, still get a good interval session in. This is interesting stuff, and we're not done yet. The article goes further in part two and discusses how muscle typology impacts the response to training loads, specifically in an overload period. So really we're talking about volume. How does each type of athlete respond to volume and does it change the risk for functional overreaching after a big training block? This time they took 24 elite male and female middle distance runners. We're talking 800 meter and 1500 meter specialists Over seven weeks, the first three weeks were normal training, followed by one week, each at 10, 20, and 30% of increased training volume. Then one week of tapering, which was a 55% decrease from the previous week. They did a bunch of tests before and after the block that were mainly there to determine whether the athletes responded neutrally to the training load, which is they were fatigued, but they showed no performance impairment, or they were overreached. Of the 24 runners, exactly half of them were categorized as overreached, defined as a significant decrease in time to exhaustion during a submaximal treadmill run. The other half were fatigued by the increased training load, but still responded with a similar time to exhaustion during a submaximal treadmill run. So where does this leave us? Overall, it's no surprise that big training volume increases are hard, and a significant proportion of athletes doesn't respond well. Now here comes the juicy details. When muscle fiber typology was factored in, the overreached group had a significantly higher estimated proportion of fast-twitch fibers than the neutral group, meaning they were fast-twitch athletes. And also, the fast-twitch athletes had a strong correlation between fast-twitch percentage and drop in time to exhaustion compared to baseline. This was true for both immediately following the three weeks of high volume and also for after the week of tapering. Of course, there's many unanswered questions around this relationship. And the authors do finish off the article with the standard, future work will determine whether the context of training can be individualized based on differences in muscle fiber typology to maximize the adaptions to training. So we're on the same page Here's the takeaway from this two-part article. Your muscle fiber typology can play a major role in your response to certain individual training sessions and long-term training. In other words, in addition to needing extra recovery from individual interval sessions, these data suggest that those with a high proportion of fast-twitch fibers may have to be especially careful to avoid huge ramps in training volume and may need to focus on a carefully guided ramp-up in volume, especially in overload training blocks. Uncovering these types of findings in some ways confirms what coaches and athletes have already known for some time. But the benefit of breakthroughs like this mean that it does reduce the time it takes to learn how you best respond to training, and as these things develop over the years, not weeks. It can shorten the process of truly personalising training. It's early days, though. And while I look forward to the day I can do this on day one for a new athlete, until then, it's back to the old ways of figuring out what works and what doesn't. It's time once again for The Chaser, the segment of the show where I talk about something that's probably unreleased, untested, or has nothing to do with cycling. And this time, they have all been tested by me. This is my top five products of the year. No sponsorship here, just honest reviews. I don't know if they all fall into performance. Actually, I don't think they do. Number one is Jabra 65T wireless earbuds. I listen to music when I ride, even outdoors. Controversial, I know. But when I went hunting for some wireless earbuds, I didn't want them to fall out of my ears. And Apple AirPods do not fit in my ears these ones do, you can adjust them, you can change the rubber on them. One of my ear holes is actually bigger than the other, TMI, but anyway. And they work, they're quick to connect, uh, the controls are good, you can use them with gloves or not, it's easy to pick up. So I definitely recommend these. Number two, Isole Nix. This is a Danish brand, partly owned by Jakob Fulslung and a couple of his mates, I guess, Um I really enjoyed these Knicks because the first thing I noticed when they put them on, they're very high. So it has a nice tummy coverage, which kind of holds everything in really well. Uh, Nice lightweight straps, which are really good, especially in summer. They don't get in the way. And they're holding their age well. Not only, okay, they're comfortable. It's kind of like a standard baseline here. But they have been used a lot over the last year. Washed after every time I've used them. Of course, and they've been holding their color well. They're black, so they shouldn't fade too much. But I have definitely had black Nicks fade, and nobody wants to see that. Number three, WTB Nano Gravel Tires in 40 millimeters. I was looking to upgrade my 35 millimeter tires to something a bit bigger and chunkier as I was starting to hit a bit of single track on my gravel bike, and these ones were excellent. Fast on the road because they have a ridge in the center, but also perfect for the hard pack single track that I ride in, I can't not recommend them. Of course, they're not these type of ones that have nothing in the middle to make it super fast when you're on the road. I did want a semi-serious tire once I got to the dirt, and these fit the bill perfectly. Number four, I'm going to butcher this, but the Tapabuco, and it's a tire plug tool. Now, tire plug tools essentially do the same thing. You have the bacon strips or whatever, and you stick them in, pull them out. So now it's just coming down to functionality of small things, storage, how easy they are to get used and when you need them. The big thing with having a plug tool is basically, as soon as you hear something that the sealant isn't sealing up properly, you need to stop, put your thumb on it. And with the other hand, get something that's going to be able to plug it so you don't have to put too much air into it after that, even maybe not even having to pump it up at all. So having something that's easily readily available rather than something that's in your pocket that you may have to unscrew or some or somewhere else, this thing just sticks directly either into the end of your bar or for me, it goes into the hole where the bottom bracket is. And that is a really easy place for me to get to no matter where I'm standing around the bike. And if I'm holding, then I can get in there and get it out. It's a perfect position. It hasn't fallen out yet, which is probably the best part about it. But of course, it's a standard plugging tool, which just works. And number five, a big, thick, black exercise mat. We have wooden floors here at home, and I've never really spent much time doing mobility work, probably because of that. Now, I'm down on the floor, basically every night on my roller and my ball, working out the kinks doing stretches. For me, this probably has been the biggest life-changing purchase that I've made. It seems simple, but it really has changed me from being a sloth at the end of the day, watching some TV, to being active and really getting the benefit of using my mobility tools and doing it now without even thinking while I'm trying to switch off and watch some telly. And I've got an extra one here, an honorable mention to the VacMaster Air Airmover, for me, Europe's best indoor training fan. It's a wet carpet, plaster, concrete, or paint fan. And I found people talking about it on the Trainer Road forum. And man, I love it. Focused airflow. Put a little riser on there. It hits the top of my knees and my torso and a little bit of my face. Put my hands on the drops. It gets my whole face. It's small. It's built with function in mind. It does its job perfectly. The airflow is enough, more than enough, and I really, really love it. It is Again, it's one of those things that has changed my riding. I can't see going back to any other type of fan or no fan, which I didn't have for 12 months or so. But anyway, so there it is, my top five, my top six. Hope you get some value from that. And that's all I've got. Ride Better, Faster is written, hosted, and scored by me, Damien Roos, You can check out more episodes at semiprocycling.com. Until next time, ride well.